Attention doctors and other healthcare workers and students. MedCon 2018 is coming to Marion University's College of Osteopathic Medicine in Indianapolis, Saturday, April 14th. This year's theme is what does it mean to be a Catholic physician or nurse in 2018? Our keynote speaker, Dr. Jeffrey Berger, is the medical director of the Catholic Addiction Treatment Center in Michigan, who will focus on the current opioid epidemic. Speakers from all five Catholic medical guilds in Indiana will speak on topics ranging from counseling the unborn patient to physician-assisted suicide to management approaches to burnout. Others will clarify the difference between ordinary and extraordinary care and explain the challenges of providing medical care to undocumented immigrants. A special Friday evening student event will give insights from personality research to help them select their specialties. For more information, go to medcon2018.splashthat.com. That's M-E-D-C-O-N-2018.splashthat.com. This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be Dr. Jonathan Scrafford, a young, newly-minted obstetrician-gynecologist from Wichita, Kansas. We're going to discuss his training path, which I think our listeners will find quite interesting, as a faithful Catholic doctor in a secular setting. And he's also going to enlighten us on something known as the ERDs, the Ethical and Religious Directives of the U.S. Bishops that help Catholic physicians and nurses know how to practice, particularly in hospital settings. But first, we're going to start with a news item. Andrew, today I found this interesting article called U-Shaped Association Between BMI and Psychological Stress from the Mayo Clinic Proceedings in December of 2017. But I think the more accurate and easy to understand title would be, is fat and happy really a thing? See, that's a, that's a good question because you've definitely heard that saying, but what about all the medical problems with being overweight? That's right. So do fat and happy go together? Well, prior to this study, they said there have been inconsistent findings related to whether or not anxiety, depression, or just life-altering angst is related to obesity. So what do you do to figure it out? Well, you're going to have to ask about a million people and see how it looks. Well, we didn't quite get to a million, but those Brits across the pond got together 114,000 British adults. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's, that's more people than live in my neighborhood. And they figured out the body mass index on each of them and gave them a 12-question health questionnaire. And, you know, the body mass index is something that you figure out based on your weight and height. And the magic number seems to be 25. You want to be under 25. 18 to 25 is what we consider normal, right? I don't know if it's normal, if normal is based on percentage it's in probably the population. Not, <laughs> not common anymore, but that's that's what traditionally has been thought of as a healthy weight. That's cons- that, that is. So that means if you're five foot four, that's you want to be 144 pounds or less, five six, 154, five eight, 163. 5'10", 173, or 6 foot 183. So I personally am 5 feet 10, and my wife tells me I look anorexic at 173 pounds, which I did several years ago. I'm about 10 pounds over that. So my BMI is 26.5. It's in the overweight. Anything 25 to 30 is considered overweight. So what did they find out in this study? Well, they found out that fat and happy does seem to be a thing. In fact, if you look at what they found, there was a lower rate of anxiety and depression in those who were slightly overweight, 25 to 30 BMI, or even obese, a BMI of 30 to 35, compared to those who were, quote, normal weight or underweight or so-called morbidly obese with a BMI over 35. So this was a good thing. There was about a 10 to 15% decrease in those common psychological problems. So that's a really interesting finding. It makes me almost rethink what we're calling normal or kind of the goal weight. We know, what is it now, 75, 80% of Americans are at least overweight. I saw a study recently projected that today's teens, 57% of them are going to be obese by the age of 35, which we've got all the major health issues about obesity, but Maybe if we just adjusted that normal range up a little bit, it, it wouldn't be such outlandish numbers and people would be happier. Well, I, 
I thought the same thing. So I, I looked up and there's this Lancet study. Lancet is one of those famous uh, medical journals. And they not only took a million people, but they took over 10 million people from 237 studies and looked at just general mortality, risk of dying based on weight. Now, if they just looked at the raw data, it looks like the best BMI is about 27, a little bit, quote, overweight. However, when they said they adjusted for um, smoking and other health problems, the lowest mortality was still in that 18 to 25 range, and that those in the slightly overweight category had an 11% higher mortality rate. So the, the verdict is still out because another study had said that 27 was the, the proper BMI to go for. So there's still something to be said. I, I, think, I think this is a good example for our listeners, too, how in the world of science and medicine, I, I heard one time that we double our knowledge, our, our medical knowledge, about every two years wow. because of so many new studies that are coming out. Sometimes they're conflicting. The, they're designed differently. We ask different questions. And so that's one of the things that we try and do on a daily basis as physicians is to try and bring these together in a way that's digestible and hopefully give advice that, that we can stand behind as, as based on some kind of evidence rather, rather than just advice willy-nilly. You know, and that, I think that kind of explains, too, why you see so many divergent opinions on things, because someone might quote one study and someone might quote another. And in reality, we could say that the best observation probably would be something that we all can agree on, but each of these studies are, are imperfect in their own way. So we have to find a way to, to bring them together into some advice that we can give patients. Exactly. And if you just joined us, uh, Dr. Andrew Mullally and Dr. Tom McGovern here on Redeemer Radio with Dr. Doctor are discussing recent medical news that might affect you where you live. Second article I brought up is from my own bailiwick of dermatology on bleach baths and atopic dermatitis. Atopic dermatitis is something that most people know as childhood eczema. You know, that dry, itchy, scaly skin. It's worse in the winter when the humidity and temperature are low. It's also worse in the, worse in the summer when there's a lot of sweating going on. So there have been studies done in the last 10 or 15 years looking at the efficacy, the, the help of bleach baths. And a bleach bath essentially is putting a quarter to half cup of bleach in a half to full tub of water. And you get water, kind of the um, chemical mixture of pool water. So it, it's, okay. it's not like you're, you're bleaching your clothes in, uh, in the laundry. And there was evidence that this would reduce the amount of staph bacteria on the skin, which can aggravate though not necessarily cause childhood eczema. In fact, the American Academy of Dermatology recommendations from 2014 say that except for bleach baths, no topical anti-staph bacteria treatment has been shown to be clinically helpful in patients with childhood eczema. Well, they're going to have to change that now because they did an analysis of all the studies looking at bleach baths, and they found out that while bleach baths do help, just plain water baths without bleach helped just as much. Now, that's interesting to me because I've, I've always been taught that kids with eczema, you want to do less bathing. And that was what was taught for so many years. But the reality is pretty simple in my mind, but I'm only a dermatologist. And that is if your cells that are healing... And this is what I tell my patients with wounds that are healing. If you're a new cell that has to heal, are you going to crawl across a dry rocky desert, or are you going to skate across a pond or, or an ice rink to fill in those gaps? There's and that UP coming out again. You betcha, skating. eh? Yes, always skating on thin ice. <laughs> so what it turns out is that moisturizing the skin is necessary. And these baths were only 5 to 15 minutes long in these studies. If you go too long, you actually damage the top layer of skin that holds the moisture in. So going too long is bad, but not doing it at all is also bad. So a bath of 5 to 15 minutes with warm water followed by a moisturizer to seal it in is still the best thing. And without the bleach, you're actually saving time, you're saving money, uh, saving maybe some minor irritation. So bleach baths, they do work, but no better than just plain baths for your kiddos with eczema. So there you have it. Well, now we move on to Andrew's preventive medicine tip of the day. 
All right, we've got another preventative medicine tip from the USPSTF, the governmental organization that tells us what we should be doing. And this one is about uh, pap smears. So special attention goes out to women of childbearing age who might be interested in pap smears. And this recommendation came out in 2012, and it's actually changed recommendations from previous. Many things in, in screening and especially in women's health change from time to time as we get more data, as we've been discussing. Yes. This recommendation, the most current one, recommends that women obtain a pap smear every three years after the age of 21 until the age of 30, and then every three to five years between 30 and 65. How does that differ from the prior recommendations? Well, you know, that's actually my first point. It's not an annual anymore. Many women come in and they call and they want to schedule an appointment for their annual. And while it's still good and it's still recommended to get an annual exam, that may well include a pelvic exam. The actual pap smear, which many women equate with their annual, is not necessary to be done every time because we have better technology for assessing the cells of the cervix. So how does better technology mean we don't have to check it as often? Right. Well, it, it kind of boils down to why we do pap smears. And so the, the main reason that we do pap smears is to look for cervical cancer. Right. And the main cause of that is HPV, which is actually a sexually transmitted disease. And so... Which is HPV meaning warts. Correct. Human papillomavirus. Um, when, we, when we have people who are sexually active, we know that over 80% of them have HPV wow. uh, when they're non-monogamous. Obviously, folks that are monogamous, especially lifetime monogamy, which is the, the obvious goal from the moral perspective, leads to very little risk of cervical cancer. Certainly. But uh, the main reason we screen is, is for the majority of folks out there who do have exposure to this. In the past, they would take a sample of the cervical cells and put it on a slide, right. and they would look just like the old school, looking under the microscope Got at the it. different cells. Now we have fancier ways of doing it with flow cytometry and ex examining the cells using machines, rather. Uh, and now we actually have one step further where we test the cells for HPV. So now if you have the cells examined under, under the machine and you're tested for HPV, women over 30 can feel really confident going every five years for a pap smear. So the new technology helps find changes sooner than looking under the microscope would. Precisely, and, and that way we can extend the screening a little bit. Excellent. What's now, your next key point, Andrew? The key point is you have to ask for the five-year version ah. because it, it is not being done regularly everywhere. Uh, many providers still want to see patients more frequently, so they'll keep them on the three-year plan, although I've encouraged all my patients to obtain the five-year version of the pap smear if possible, although it's still good to see your providers every year. Um, it's worth noting that we don't start until the age of 21 because many times people who have HPV in their teenage years, unfortunately, can clear the virus on their own. So this is specifically designed for women 21 to 65. Um, my last uh, question, the top three things you know, is when can you stop getting pap smears? Yes. I have that question a lot as I love caring for older women as they get later on in life. And you can imagine with STDs, being the primary risk, uh, they're, they get progressively lower and lower risk as they get Certainly. older. And so the USPSTF suggests stopping at the age of 65 because the screening does not, the benefit does not outweigh the risk. You're not catching enough cases for it to be worthwhile unless someone finds themselves into a new risk category, higher risk. And I even have conversations with women younger than 65, especially those who have been lifetime monogamous. Yes. Um, and those also who have been long-term monogamous with no abnormal pap smears, I think it'd be wise and even prudent to, to stop the pap smear earlier, even though we continue with the regular physical exam. So this obviously is off the board if, in fact, you have any abnormal pap smears, but it's a decision to be made with your individual doctor. Excellent. Very practical information. Thank you, Dr. Mulally. And before we go to our first break, we have our medical trivia question of the day. Today, again, is something from my realm, something that I use every day. It's called cat gut suture. Well, what is cat gut suture made of? And more importantly, are our cats, Max and Cornflower, in danger of ending up in the skin of my surgery patients in the future? <laughs> to find out that, listen to our interview, and after that, you'll get the answer. This is Dr. Doctor from Redeemer Radio, where we discuss health matters because people matter.
This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Andrew Mullally coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. Today we're going to interview Dr. Jonathan Scrafford, a newly minted obstetrician-gynecologist in Wichita, Kansas, and we're interviewing him today because at the 2017 annual meeting of the Catholic Medical Association in Denver, he gave a presentation uh, that was fascinating to the people who heard it, and he got such rave reviews that I then got a copy of it, listened to it, and I said, I think our listeners would enjoy listening to Jonathan. So, Jonathan, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thanks for having me. Oh, you are welcome. I understand that you currently work for the Via Christi Clinic and Ascension Health in Wichita. Is that right? Yeah, I do. I started there about six months ago. And what's the transition been like from uh, medical training to medical practice? It's been great so far. I've really enjoyed it. All of the things that were better about residency than they were about medical school are also true about being a an on-your-own physician compared to residency. Just a lot more autonomy, a lot closer relationships with patients, and, and of course it helps that I'm, I'm now back in my hometown. That, that definitely makes it feel great. That's always wonderful. Now there's one thing on the profile online for your website that I found while stalking you that I think our listeners will love. And could you tell in your own words the answer to the question, quote, why I chose this specialty? Yeah. There, there are a lot of reasons that I chose obstetrics and gynecology. From when I started medical school, I did have a little bit of a sense of mission oriented towards women's health. I knew that women's health was an area that a lot of patients felt underserved, that they couldn't find the types of physicians that they wanted to have relationships with. In particular, in my hometown, I noticed and heard from my family that there were a lot of women who couldn't find Catholic physicians who women felt comfortable going to with their OBGYN needs. So part of it was mission-based. I felt that there was a need that I wanted to fulfill. But then during medical school, on when I got to rotations, I also noticed that all of the things you come to like about a specialty from the type of practice that they have, the type of procedures you get to do, the variety of kind of clinic, hospital, and OR experience, they all fit very well with OBGYN. I, I like the, the variety that you had with them. Well, the And then probably... The statement I was looking at is, your answer online says, quote, women make the best <laughs> patients. Would you like yeah. to explain that? Yeah, so that was going to be the last part. I, I was uh, going to mention that during rotations, I just felt from every rotation that I went to, no matter what the specialty, it seemed that women usually made the best patients. They tend to be more motivated about their health than men in general. Um, they tend to, to view their health as an important thing for their family, for their community, they they tend to engage um, more with the, the physician, kind of in that therapeutic alliance that we that we call the uh, patient physician relationship, and and not that of course there are exceptions on both sides to that, but during my experience in medical school, that was something that I really admired about women that they they took their health seriously and viewed it as as an important thing, not just for their own interests, but for the interests of those people in their lives that were close to them. Well, that makes sense to me because I was recently educated about why women are superior with the two X chromosomes, <laughs> and it, it turns out a Y chromosome is just a messed up X chromosome, <laughs> and so that's that's why women. I I can totally see why they make the best patients. That's true, but hey, some of the some of the best you know junk foods and pleasures in life were discovered by accident from a messed up something else. So. There you go. <laughs> Touche. See, that's a good attitude. How, how, maybe you could walk us through your training a little bit and tell us how you got there. I know there's a lot of our listeners who may be even thinking about a career in healthcare and women's health. How, how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, I, through the discernment process through medical school, I decided that I wanted to do something in women's health, which you can fulfill very well in, in multiple specialties, primarily family medicine and, and OBGYN. I wanted to have kind of as close a relationship as I could with some of the, the tougher issues in OBGYN and women's health that you can, and so I pursued obstetrics and gynecology. And I, during medical school, developed a lot of relationships with physician mentors, other OBGYNs who, who I found were supportive and who I could kind of relate to and ask questions to. And I think that's a helpful thing on any path, no matter what specialty people go to, that, that they have mentors, that they can bring tough questions and anxieties about their, their future career to. And I found uh, a lot of those during medical school where, where I could help resolve some of the issues that, that I think a lot of uh, 
Catholic providers going into OBGYN kind of struggle with. Now, Jonathan, you are at a secular medical school, University of Minnesota. You are a faithful Catholic. Was that ever a problem, being um, a faithful Catholic at a secular medical school? During medical school, I didn't encounter too many problems with it. It seemed during medical school that, and it was a, a large medical school, so the class was large enough that that people could kind of go their own way, and especially nowadays when a lot of medical schools offer, you know, watching a lot of the lectures from, from home, it seemed that there, there was a, enough opportunity to kind of fly under the radar and keep my nose to the, to the grindstone. And because of that, I didn't encounter a whole lot of, of difficulty during medical school. I also found during rotations that medical students can tend to fly under the radar a little bit when, when it comes to tough ethical situations, and they have a lot more freedom than, say, residents do in terms of uh, opting out of certain procedures or opting out of certain parts of care, partially because they're less you know, integral to to the provision of the care itself. And so I, I found that during medical school, I didn't encounter a whole lot of, of hostility there. If you just tuned in, this is Dr. Doctor, today with Dr. Andrew Mullally and me, Dr. Tom McGovern, interviewing Jonathan Scrafford, an obstetrician-gynecologist from Wichita, Kansas. So they didn't pick on you, call your names, or keep you from playing any reindeer games, but this changed <laughs> during your interview process for... OBGYN residency? Yeah, when I started the interview process, it became clear to me pretty quickly that the expectation to participate in certain uh, certain procedures, certain activities, prescribing certain things was a lot different for incoming residents than it would be for a medical student. And again, partially because during residency, there's the resident plays a more integral role to delivering care for the institution. And so during the interview process, I went in with it with kind of a, an attitude of being honest up front with institutions in, in order to avoid uncomfortable situations later where where maybe institutions would find out that I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable providing procedures like sterilizations or medications like contraception. And so every interview I went to, I would let the program director know the things that I would not feel comfortable providing that I knew that they may expect me to. And, and I would ask them whether that was something that could be accommodated. And during at most of the institutions that I interviewed, a slight majority, they said no, that it's not something they could accommodate, that they, as an institution, needed their residents to, to provide all of those services in order for the institution to kind of keep going. There were a, a good number of residencies, a minority, but still a good handful, that, that said that, yes, they were willing to accommodate it. Some of them even expressed the attitude that they understood where I was coming from and and that I hadn't been the first person to ask those questions. Did, did you but get yeah, the sense certainly... in, in talking to these, these different program directors that some of them had never heard of this before, had never been asked absolutely. that question? Yeah, absolutely. Especially at, at most secular institutions, it was uh, very foreign to them, something they had not, not heard before. I would say at most community-based institutions and programs, they had, it was a common thing that they had encountered over the years, which I was pleased to hear that there are, there are lots of OBGYN residents still going through and asking those questions. But certainly at most of the secular institutions, it, it seemed very foreign and, and sometimes even offensive to them. <laughs> I, I know at one of the interviews, I, I adopted a similar approach where in, in applying for residency, you have a second look usually after the initial interview. And that's mm -hmm. when I, I, in family medicine, would spring the news on them, hey, there's some of these things that I'm not going to be able to help with. And, you know, you get some weird responses. I had one guy said, oh, I've met someone like you before, but we were able to convince them before they left to change their mind, oh, you know. Sure. Uh, and so I'm, I'm sure you've, you've gotten some interesting responses from that type of question as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will say one of, the, one of my favorite experiences on during residency was just the surprise that I had when I interviewed at my home institution at the University of Minnesota I was pleasantly surprised to find them among the, the programs that was willing to make accommodations. The program director there certainly did not hold any of the same views that I did about bioethics at the beginning of life or, you know, contraception. And so he didn't hold my same views, but he was very level-headed, very fair, and and he more or less answered the question honestly. He knew that, that it was not truly necessary for, for residents to provide all of those services and that, and that it could be accommodated. And and he was willing to make that accommodation. I think 
we we have a tendency to assume in advance what people are going to say, what people are going to think, and I think oftentimes that prevents us from venturing out in certain areas or from approaching what may may be tough conversations. But at the same time, I think, you know, God puts people in our lives that will make opportunities possible for us, and he'll have doors ready and open for us if we if we look for them. And, and that was one of the, the better examples of that that I've encountered during my life. That sounds like a very <clears throat> fair and good mentor to have in your life. Um, I would have appreciated more mentors like that. Now, how did this view hold with your fellow residents? Yeah, it, it held fairly well. I mean, none of them certainly agreed with me, especially when it came to contraception. I did, I did find that within even secular institutions for OBGYN residencies, that there are always uh, a small handful of, of providers who do not provide abortion. And I think that's true at almost almost every secular institution that there would be a, a small number of those. And so those views held very well. They knew that that was a view to be at, at the least tolerated and in some instances even respected. With regard to contraception, they were less less well received, certainly. I think there's still a pervasive idea in our culture that, that if a provider doesn't believe that contraception is in the best interest in, in of the woman, that they're in some way chauvinistic or have distorted views of, of where women should be in life. And so those, I certainly got a lot of comments from colleagues about things, things like that. But if you have meaningful conversations with people, especially people that you work with closely and that you don't have just very brief limited encounters with, over time, they can come to understand that that, that view of not feeling that contraception is in the best interest of a patient does not have to be married with other views of, you know, chauvinism or not wanting women to have, you know, freedom and ability to, to control their bodies. Did, did you have any encounters with other residents maybe that were evangelistic in that way that you could give them an opportunity to see this point of view? And I, you know, I've talked to a couple residents who, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do artificial contraception orally, but they didn't mind sterilizations, or some didn't like IUDs because they admitted that those were abortifacient. Did you, did you mm-hmm. feel like you wore away on some of your colleagues during your training? At my program, not very much. There were probably only one or two residents that I had meaningful conversations about or conversations that I felt, you know, really went anywhere, and neither one really ended up changing their, their position or their practice pattern. Part of it is that at secular institutions, it is true that most people who are there are, are, are because they also have a feeling of mission towards women's health care, and, and unfortunately, oftentimes those missions are, are driven in a for exactly the opposite purposes, where they consider a big part of their mission to be able to sterilize and and to offer contraception for any woman who would be willing to do those things. And I certainly found that that was true um, at, at my program for, for many of my residents. Um, that said, there I definitely had many more meaningful conversations on the topic of abortion, where, again, certainly there's still a wide range of, of beliefs and opinions about whether that is morally acceptable. Well, I, I think it's very good for our listeners to see kind of some of the uh, isolation and really the testament that that physicians like yourself provide to the culture. The light shines brightest in the darkness, and so we, we appreciate your, your statement by your actions. And we're going to take a little break here and come back to talk about the ERDs. We will be right back after the break with more Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where your hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, discuss health matters because people matter. Jonathan, we talked in the last segment about your path through training. I just have one more question about that. And I understand that you were chosen to be chief resident by your peers, despite holding quite different bioethical views. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, during my fourth year of of training, I had the pleasure of serving as uh, chief resident. And why do you think they chose you, even though you differed from the vast majority of obstetrics and gynecology residents throughout the country? Yeah, it's a good question, and I never really took the the initiative to ask anyone, I guess, why they you know voted for me or anything. I I like to think that it may be because they they viewed me similarly to the way that I viewed my program director, somebody who 
had very different views, but was willing to be level-headed and honest, transparent and upfront. If I had been given a choice of, you know, who I would want for my program director, I would have chosen the our program director, even though he had very different views than me. And I think it's possible that when, even if somebody has very different views than you, you are attracted to them if they are honest, if they're transparent and they're clear. And and it, it may be that they that they figured if I was honest enough to tell them about my my views on things that I knew that they would disagree with, that maybe I'd also be honest enough and transparent enough about administrative things. I think you, in living the way you did, did a great work of evangelization. Now, when well, thank you, you. You're welcome. It's good for us to hear. It motivates us all. Now, in your training, you came across these ERDs, ethical and religious directives. How did that become part of your life? Yeah, I learned about the ethical religious directives during medical school, mostly because I, as I was approaching the year, the residency interview trail, I wanted to have a very clear idea about what I should and shouldn't ask about on the, these interviews, things that I should and shouldn't do. And so fortunately, in the, the modern era, we have the luxury of being able to Google things. And so <laughs> essentially, I just started Googling, you know, the, what are the church's teachings on, um, you know, abortion, sterilization, contraception. And in particular, I, I think it was as I was searching for under what circumstances could uh, certain procedures or medications be used for therapeutic indications that most of the documents I read kind of referenced the ERDs. And so that's where I first started kind of finding them. And as I was searching for answers to those questions. When did you first practically use them in a patient care situation? Let's see. Prob- the, probably the first time, um, and it's, it was the first time because it's the situation that comes up fairly often in gynecology, is as I started to manage cases of ectopic pregnancies. Yes. Um, it comes up commonly for gynecologists and and, of course, it, there is some ethical dilemma to it because when there is an ectopic pregnancy, you have both a condition that can be life-threatening for the mother, but still oftentimes a living and sometimes even uh, still growing uh, embryo. And in those cases, uh, the ethical religious directives essentially describe that outside of doing any action that would constitute a direct abortion, you know, harming the embryo directly, that you can do procedures such as a self-injectomy to remove the portion of the fallopian tube that the pregnancy is in, in order to save the life of the mother. And that certainly happened as early as the first few weeks of my of my internship. And, and that's an instance that continues to come up with some regularity in gynecology. Now, the first version of the ERDs can actually be traced back to 1915, uh, a one-page surgical code that was hanging on the world the walls of Catholic hospital operating rooms. But the first edition called the ERDs was in 1948, and we're actually on, what, about the fifth edition right now. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that sounds about right, yeah. And I, if I look correctly, the, uh, the last edition is from 2009, or is it 2000? Yeah. Okay. So it hasn't really changed during your training. Right, right. I think I, I anticipate there will probably be another edition, hopefully sometime in the next 10 years or so, because there are just more and more issues that, that need to be addressed in Catholic health care, I think especially in the area of psychiatry and mental health. I, I believe, actually, the CMA, Catholic Medical Association Episcopal Advisor, Bishop Connolly from Lincoln, Nebraska, is one of the chairpersons for that committee. So we're, wow. we're very excited to have him on board, and I had a chance to talk to him about that a little bit. Definitely a lot of changes, and I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting the next copy. Now, yeah. are, are the ERDs um, supposed to be followed by any hospital that uses Catholic in its name? Yeah, that is my understanding, that they in, they were originally designed for institutions, Catholic institutions, that they also, of course, are, are useful for Catholic providers and individuals, but that most of the ethical religious directives themselves are kind of aimed towards institutional health care in particular. And so my understanding is that, that any Catholic health care institution that would call themselves Catholic should be held to, to those standards. Now, besides the section on ectopic pregnancies, that is where there's a pregnancy within the fallopian tube that didn't make its way to the uterus, are there other patient care issues that have been addressed in there that you have had to apply them to? Yeah, certainly. I 
one of the one of the areas of the ethical religious directives talks about the provision of baptism in the cases of emergencies and and this is one area that I didn't really anticipate until residency started but occasionally in in OBGYN there are situations where we suddenly deliver a baby in oftentimes very unfortunate circumstances where the baby is either born prior to viability or with a condition that it will not survive that he or she will not survive for more than maybe a few minutes or a few hours. And so I, I did have a few opportunities during uh, residency to, to actually perform baptism in cases of emergencies like that, which is another area that, that comes up, fortunately, not nearly as frequently, but, but occasionally in obstetrics. That's wonderful. You're looking at the eternal good of your patients, which I think all of us physicians need to do. Yeah. Do you have uh, any other stories where the ethical and religious directives helped you? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, most of the time that I use the ethical religious directives are, are unfortunate circumstances. The baptism one is, is one that I think has a lot of kind of redeeming value. Uh, but there was, there was a case during residency where we had a woman who had a life-threatening hemorrhage due to placenta accreta, which is where the placenta grows abnormally into the uterus. And, and this happened prior to viability. And um, that was a case where, where, we, where I, in my mind, referred to the ethical religious directive that, that says that procedures that are, are aimed for the, the saving of the life of a mother can be performed even if they are anticipated to result in the, the death of a child indirectly. And so in that case, we performed a hysterectomy emergently oh. um, with baby, baby still in the uterus in order to save this woman's life. And it was probably one of the most tragic events that I've experienced during, during residency. But another you know, example just of, of the times in, in obstetrics and gynecology that you have to be kind of prepared for very difficult decisions and to know under what circumstances what things can be provided. If you just joined with us, this is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are interviewing Dr. Jonathan Scrafford, an obstetrician gynecologist from Wichita, Kansas. So, Jonathan, that would be the so-called principle of double effect. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, it, it sounds so dry, you know, on the page. But when you experience what you went through, it's it's very challenging. Yeah, certainly. And I would say the although the the ethical religious directives don't directly mention the principle of double effect, there are several of the directives that invoke kind of principle or parts of it. And um, the principle of double effect is certainly another thing that I would recommend uh, Catholic physicians to be kind of familiar with because it's a very simple tool. It can it, There's just a few points, but it can be applied to a lot of different situations. Did, did you find a sense of kind of solace and comfort in having the ERDs to turn to in, in times like this where I can only imagine some some secular colleagues where, you know, if, if you have to make these decisions and maybe there's even some, some doctors out there that we know that don't even appeal to the idea of a universal truth or any, any standard to judge against, it's got to be in some ways comforting knowing that we have, have something like this to help guide us in those tough decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the modern era in general, but even especially in modern medicine, there's an increasing temptation to be to become perfectionistic and to be able to have all the answers on your own. Uh, it's something that our culture tries to encourage among us. It's something that our education tries to encourage. And although there's certainly value in, in being able to develop as much within yourself as you can to answer questions on your own, I think human nature tells us that, that we're never going to have all the answers on our own, that it's always going to be helpful to have resources, from people who have thought about things for longer periods of time and with larger groups and to be able to bounce ideas off of. So I, I find it extremely helpful to have an external document that that was drafted under calm circumstances to be able to refer to during those tough times. When you give presentations on this topic, as you did in Denver, uh, what are some of the key points you want your listeners to take home regarding the ERDs? Yeah, pro- I mean, probably... A couple of the the biggest points are to try, try to, that that old saying that a stitch in time saves nine, and I think that that's the way it is with spiritual formation too. That if you wait until you encounter difficult situations, almost always during the pressure of the moment, you will make an error in judgment due to you know being swept up in the moment emotionally. Yes, and so it's it's extremely important to to anticipate these things, to review them 
far in advance while you have time to think about things under calm conditions. And uh, so that's one thing that I would certainly recommend is that is to refer to them, to read them ahead of time before you ever run into the situations themselves. And then also to talk about them with other providers. The ethical religious directives are not comprehensive. They don't certainly talk about every specific circumstance that could come up. They're a general guide of principles that can be applied to different situations. But within any specialty, there are going to be nuances of situations that that it's helpful to discuss with colleagues. And so I, again, recommend so strongly having uh, at least a small group of trusted colleagues that that if you don't know how to apply the ERDs in a particular situation, that you can talk to them about and see how they might. Thank you, Jonathan. We've interviewed Jonathan Scrafford today, obstetrician-gynecologist from Wichita, about the ERDs, Ethical Religious Directives for Catholic Healthcare, and his experience of training. Thank you for being present with us. We hope to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And we'll take a break now where on Dr. Doctor we discuss health matters because people matter. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where your hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today's medical trivia question posed in the first segment is, what is cat gut suture made of? And does your cat Fluffy have to run if they see a surgeon coming their way? <laughs> well, cat gut suture, Andrew, drumroll, is not made from cats. Why would they call it cat gut then? Why would they call it cat gut? And who are they anyway? Well, there are many people who refer to it as cat gut. What it actually is, before we get to where the term cat gut may come from, is it's made of strands of purified collagen. Well, collagen is that stuff in the skin that makes it strong. It's that stuff in cow skin that makes leather leather. Leather is made of collagen. Now, the collagen in gut suture, because cat gut suture is more commonly now just called gut or surgical gut or chromic gut, does come from the gut. It comes actually from a layer of the small intestine in ruminants. Those are animals such as cattle, sheep, and goats. So while Fluffy may not to run, need may not need to run away from you, Daisy and Bessie may need to <laughs> run away from you. In fact, even some gut suture is made from beef tendon, <clears throat> but typically it's from intestinal lining cells. And this suture, which I will typically use <clears throat> on the surface of the skin because it dissolves rapidly and patients don't need to come back to have stitches removed. It's a, a wonderful thing. I've even had patients say, now, doctor, I'm allergic to cats, so don't use any cat gut suture. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and I just kind of smile. So, yes, this is uh, a somewhat practical question. But the term cat gut may come from either the phrase cattle gut being shortened to cat gut because it was literally made from cattle gut tissue. Uh, and also, the word kit has been used to refer to a young cat. And a kit was also a term that referred to a fiddle. So <clears throat> kit gut would be a fiddle string. And so if they didn't realize the kit referred to a fiddle and thought the kit referred to a little cat, then you get cat gut from that. And in fact, the first known absorbable sutures made hundreds of years ago were made from the intestines of sheep in a process similar to making the musical strings of violins and guitars. In fact, gut strings were used as early as the 3rd century AD by the prominent Greek physician named Galen. So cats, you are safe from surgeons such as me. <laughs> now, we wanted to discuss a, a movie today. It's a documentary that came out in December of uh, 2017, at least on PBS. It was produced in 2016. It's called Your Health, a Sacred Matter. And in fact, if you want to learn more about it, there's a website that's exactly that. No spaces, yourhealthasacredmatter.com. And it was recommended to me after I spoke on suffering in Portland, Oregon, after their white mass. And uh, I believe that this video 
was done particularly to show in any secular situation, or religious for that matter, people trained to be nurses or physicians. And it explores <clears throat> the long history of the relationship between religion and medicine. There's, there's definitely a connection there, right? Even JP2 talked about the relationship of science and medicine. And it's one of the things that usually ends up coming to, to a head in, in modern culture with the, the ethical issues. But it's so much more than that, isn't it? Yes. In fact, here it was quite focused on the religious beliefs of the patient and not necessarily the religious beliefs of the physician. But it was done in an incredibly respectful way. And it looks at short stories involving people of multiple different religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Ayurvedic medicine that the Hindus practice, Catholic Christian, uh, non-Catholic Christian, uh, Jewish, Muslim. And it was actually done very well. There was really nothing in here that I think would be offensive to anybody of any religious background. It was basically educating physicians how to talk God when patients bring it up. That's, it's, a, it's a skill set, right? Because you're, you're making assumptions based on what we know to be true from our, our belief, but many other people don't hold those beliefs. And so trying to not alienate them, but also be available to talk to them, because as a, especially I feel like when, in times of sickness, patients always, they, everyone looks up, you know, they say there's no atheists in foxholes. And so it's, it's something that I feel people bring up routinely with me, especially the, the more ill they are. I think that's right, and I think that very few of us going into medical school know how to talk to patients about that. In fact, the video starts with something that's actually a relatively new ceremony that many medical schools do called the white coat ceremony. Actually, I found out last night that this ceremony only began in 1993. Oh, really? Yes, there was no such thing uh, before that. It started at one of the New York medical schools. It has spread uh, through the country. and then it ends with a graduating medical school class taking an oath, which is curiously not the original Hippocratic Oath, because the original Hippocratic Oath actually includes the statement that I will not give a pessary to a woman to induce an abortion. Yep. And it has been uh, reconstrued to say I will do nothing illegal in, in many <laughs> cases. But they, it, the video doesn't show that part of the oath, by the way. But uh, they go through how to form compassionate physicians, how doctors find meaning in medicine, the search for the connection between body and soul. Are doctors just technicians or are they also healers? They talk about the place and role of chaplaincy and how to form uh, a community in, in health care. And, uh, and they finally show that caregiving is really a spiritual work, not just a work of the body. Well, and that's, I think, one of the opportunities we have in healthcare is if if we consider the corporal works of mercy, yes, you know, it's really every every patient encounter is an opportunity for that. And especially when you have the opportunity to talk about matters of spirituality and faith, I think it really leads to a stronger relationship. Oh, it, it absolutely does. But they point out, and I think quite rightly, that the physician-patient relationship is not a relation of equals, at least with regard to medical knowledge and care. But we should not assume that we are in a superior position religiously, that we then are equals as human beings with regard to what we're talking. So we don't want to unfairly use our position to try to proselytize. That's why we have to make an open relationship where a patient can bring it up if they want to, or we can ask general questions, but not to be forceful, not to be domineering, not to unfairly use our physician-patient relationship. I, I always think of, of the saying, you know, preach the gospel always and when necessary use words. Was that St. Francis? That has been ascribed to St. Francis, but Franciscan historians have repeatedly shown that he never said or did any such thing because he was a well-known preacher. Yes, I've heard that and I finally looked it up. Scott Hahn uh, said in a talk he gave in August that he has looked it up, he's researched it, I read in one of his books, no finding from any Franciscan scholar. Well, thank you to whoever anonymously came up with that, because I, I like it a lot. <laughs> you know, even even C.S. Lewis, and we can nail him down on this one, 
he talked about the evangelization of even excellence, you know, where you can hopefully lead by example and just having charitable and kind encounters. You can't help but wonder why some people some people can live with such hope. And, and if you can point to Jesus and point to the gospel with that, I think that's a huge opportunity. Yes, Lewis called it the apologetics of secular competence, which is quite valuable. Now, some of the specifics in this uh, documentary that caught my attention were, uh, number one, the average person who goes to church once a week lives eight years longer than those who don't. Fascinating medical fact. Secondly, when looking at treatment for addictions, and they looked at all kinds of different religious practices, they found that only one practice was positively related with being able to give up an addiction. Twelve-step programs. It was actually one of the 12 steps, and that is forgiveness, specifically forgiving yourself and seeking forgiveness of others. That led to healing from addictions. Um, Also, they showed that, surprise, doctors are generally far less open to talk about faith matters than patients are, and most patients want a physician who's willing to talk about it with whom they can feel comfortable. There was one example of a woman whose daughter was in her final week of college at the University of Chicago and was hit by a car and severely brain damaged so that, you know, her mental abilities were far less than they were when she was a college student. And she required continual care. She was in a wheelchair. She could communicate uh, by speaking. But as she's talking about the value of caregiving, she said, how strange is our society where a Wall Street trader will make all kinds of money, yet what kind of good are they doing for society compared to her caring for her daughter almost 24-7? And yet, what do we pay people who do that kind of care where we trust them with our children? So there's a big disconnect. And yet, she said, the great value she got is that her daughter, Michelle, was, quote, her road to salvation. I think that's a, that's a valuable insight for everyone who has an opportunity to give care to loved ones. So if you're interested in looking at this or recommending this documentary to others, it's yourhealthasacredmatter.com. And signing off today, thank you for listening to Dr. Doctor, where Catholic doctors discuss medical matters because people matter. And this is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. Signing off until next time, and remember, your medical decisions can have profound consequences tomorrow. So choose wisely, choose Catholic. Next week on Dr. Doctor, Dr. McGovern and Dr. Mullally will be joined by Dr. Louise Mitchell and Dr. John Traveline to talk about their book, Catholic Witness in Healthcare, Practicing Medicine in Truth and Love. Get all the latest from Dr. Doctor by following us on Facebook. Just search Dr. Doctor's Show. And hear Dr. Doctor right here on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or catch up on past episodes anytime at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.